my brain is going, my brain is going. Um, did you watch the trailer for Namaste Wahala? No, I haven't watched the trailer yet. I promise I will. I just it's saw ridiculous. Picture, like half awake in the morning and was like, what? This is amazing. How I'm so glad Netflix. Did they, when did they tell our love story? I, I totally missed them. That's the thing. I was like, did, did they pay us? Am I getting credits for this um, story? Uh, for everyone who hasn't watched the trailer yet, including Mames, this movie called Namaste Wahala is like a... Um, a, like love story between like a Nigerian woman and an Indian guy and it's like it's gonna be one of those Netflix rom-coms think in the vein of like maybe set it up maybe to all the boys I love before but, but maybe lower your standards a little bit um I was like that that feels like it's giving it a lot of credit again saying this as someone who has not seen the trailer just the cover <laughs> art um no it looks fun and I think we should definitely have an it's kind of funny Netflix party to watch it at some point yes I'm very down idea. It comes out in that. like two weeks. Maybe we'll find a maybe we'll find a day, and then everyone can watch it with us. That'd be so fun! Everyone, please fun. join us. Join our Netflix party. Okay, it's happening. It's happening. We'll think of we'll think of a day. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I am um, grateful that the sun is out here. I know you guys wow. don't have as much of that wow. where you are. Okay. Um, wow. So from the top, have, just start starting strong. <laughs> we have sunshine um that's great um I'd also like to share a, a friend of mine is dating a man who owns some pet chickens and what? I sent her a series of texts today yes um he, he, uh, owns, he, some, like, chickens. he like, owns two pet just two pet chickens like he's but, not gonna eat them like like pet pet they like yeah they like lay eggs and he eats the eggs but that's oh, it. okay um, oh, okay yeah so he has the eggs so he had given us some eggs as a gift yesterday I live in Texas if it's unclear. Um, he's not a farmer. <laughs> he's an engineer who has chickens. What is your life? Like, why would, okay, I'm, I'm curious. What, what did you text your friend? I said, you know what? He's a good egg. And no, you know what? I am brave for making that pun. I'm no chicken. Oh All right, I got to cluck out of here before it gets any worse. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad that I don't, like, I've banned you from texting me such bad jokes. That's... <laughs> I, gonna gonna I actually went to a restaurant called the good egg today that's that's oh, where i got my breakfast that. I we're so in sync i should yeah we are so in sync even when one of us is sleeping um yeah i there was sun for an hour today i had like mapped it out from yesterday i was like it's Babruk, gonna be sunny Babruk. from 9 till 10 a.m and maybe a bit afterwards so like i like woke up and was like okay gotta get some sun and then i went for my long walk and had fun and then by noon it was rainy and cloudy again so I'm back inside for the rest of the day not going out love that yeah love that for me um should we do our 36 question should we just get into it or do you have more to catch me up on what are you watching actually because I I need new stuff oh um new stuff I don't particularly have oh actually the one uh new show that I watched that I binged um, which I think you would really appreciate and enjoy. It's called Ted Lasso. I've heard, heard this is good with um, so Mr. Olivia Wilde. What's his name? Uh, Jason Sudeikis. Yes, him. <laughs> oh my God. It like, it was the most heartwarming. This is what everyone wholesome. says. Yeah. It's, oh. And it's written by, um, it comes from the mind of, um, oh, uh, Bill, uh, oh my gosh. The guy who wrote Scrubs and produced oh, Scrubs. Oh, Bill, oh, that guy. Um, his wife is, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, Bill. Krista, 
Yo, Paxton, no. It's Bill. No. We're going to look it up. Oh, speaking yeah. of, you know, scrubs, um, did you see about Lawrence. the... Bill Lawrence. Yes. Um, did you see about the Cheaper by the Dozen remake with Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union? I saw... Honestly, I'm so excited. I mean, the original is beautiful, and I watched, I watched that movie so much growing up, but also love Zach Braff and Gabrielle Union and the idea of, like, they're adorable little biracial babies running around oh my god imagine I, imagine the casting session <laughs> i just i find it funny because someone made a point being like i don't understand what universe zach braff and gabrielle union would get together <laughs> and i was like that's a bit mean but i see their point i see their point it makes i mean it makes sense right i think um but she also you know towards the end of friends when people were like why are there no black people on friends they like kind of threw no, her in for an episode Aisha tyler Oh, Aisha, I mean, Aisha Tyler was the ultimate, I like, Aisha Tyler. yeah, she's phenomenal. And she, uh, like, her against, like, Ross was just, like, such a hilarious, like, again, a, and he didn't end up getting the girl, which is the greatest part about it. Like, yeah. Aisha Tyler and her did, and her did not end up end together. Up. Wait, Aisha I'm just Tyler, learning, even I'm just learning that is, Gabrielle Union was in Friends. Sorry that I shut you down there. I thought you were no, but she was, her with she Aisha was, Tyler. <laughs> No, no, no. I, Gabrielle Union was in Friends. She plays a girl, Kristen, who moves uh, in on this, like, on that street, and they see her and they like help her with her books or whatever. Um, but even that, she like was just a goddess next to like Chandler nice Bing. It's just funny. <laughs> yeah, Great. no, she's she stayed golden for so long. Um, I'm watching WandaVision, which is on Disney Plus. Yeah. And that, like, it had, like, episode four came out this weekend, and it had, like, a big twist, um, which we all knew was coming, because it's part of the premise of the show, but it's really, in- really interesting casting, and there's just so much going on, and it's, um, Catherine Hahn is in mm. the first episode, and she is so good at everything she does. I literally, yeah. like, watching, I was like, Catherine Hahn is in this? I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm in for the long haul, because she, I don't know, I always find her choices are great, from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, to Transparent, to everything else, so I would recommend WandaVision. Is it, I, I've heard it's, like, very sad, though. Yeah, it's basically, I mean, spoilers for, I guess, Infinity War or Endgame, but basically, uh, WandaVision is about um, Wanda, is that her name? Scarlet Witch, um, yeah. you know, at the end of uh, uh, Marvel Infinity War and Game Vision, her boyfriend, like the person she loves, like dies because he's actually one of the Infinity Stones. So he actually has to like disintegrate. So I think in the aftermath of that, she has a psychotic break and reimagines life with him in the 50s right. as if they were like in Bewitched, for example. Like it's actually like, I love Lucy, Bewitched style, like very, very old right, school. Right, right. Um, with a little like, with some kind of references to like Nick at Night, um, episodes, it's a lot of like referential stuff which I think you'd also really like so she has a psychotic break and the first episode is literally her you don't know she's having a psychotic break all you're doing is watching this I Love Lucy like show and then as the season goes on you learn that like there's a lot more to what is going on with her and it's and that, I find that interesting so yeah WandaVision I like it I mean we had canceled our uh Disney Plus subscription, but no. honestly, you might have to bring it back. Bring it back. Um, it's worth it for the Cheetah Girls alone. <laughs> yeah, I heard you watch the Cheetah. I heard you watch Cheetah Girls two yesterday. Not even I the watched, first one. I watched Cheetah Girls one last weekend and Cheetah Girls two okay. this weekend. Okay, there's a schedule. Please don't watch. You're not gonna watch Cheetah no, Girls three, are you? Never. Okay, I will never. I watched ever the first three minutes when it came out, and I turned off the TV. I was like, nope, never mind. Can't do it. First of all, Raven isn't in it, so what's the point? Let's start from there. 
Um, but yeah, one of my friends, she, um, she's from India. She grew up in India and she has actually only ever seen three. And we were like, how does that happen? And she was like, I think the Disney Plus in India that we got, like, because it's set in, the third one is set in India, or parts of it is, like, that was the one that, like, they decided to show a lot. And, like, it was great for a feeling of, like, national pride. So she only ever watched three. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. That that was national I mean, that's the thing, is that at that point, that was still, like, the best representation we'd had on Disney Channel to date. So I get it. That's why I was like really, I was really psyched. And this was like still when you were watching things like on live television with like commercial breaks. And I remember mm-hmm. they were promoing it a lot. And you would see like Keely Williams showing how they like did their choreography. And I have this vivid memory of her uh, showing how the choreographer taught her one particular hand movement. And she's like, grab the butter, pull it out, grab the <laughs> butter, pull it out. And I have this like distinct thing just burned into my memory, but I never actually watched the movie. So good good for you good for us for not watching the movie um we are 10 minutes in what is our 36th question or is it my it's my turn to ask you i think sure. what book are you reading that you would turn into a movie or a miniseries so i picked this because we talked about it this week and over text and i just wanted <laughs> to like put it out to the world and manifest it because you and i have this ability to manifest things. We so do, I'm starting, uh, I'm starting to, us. I'm going to abuse, I'm going to abuse this power right now. And I'm going to We recorded say, a goop episode and the next day the vagina candle exploded. Yeah. Or the it was all the same vagina. week, I think. Yeah. I don't know. It, it just, so and that was not right intentional. Um, so my manifestation for the week is um, I've been reading Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is just everything in the world that I love. It is a, a gay love story between the first son of America and the royal prince, um, the <laughs> prince of Wales in England, and uh, they're like coming into their feelings for like each other, and it's like DC, and there's a lot of like little references to like, you know, K Street and you know whatever. So it's just it's super. It's written very much in a way that like I can hear the voices in my head. It's like how my friends and I talk to each other. Um, so it's bringing me a ton of joy, um, and I think it'd make an amazing miniseries or TV, uh, or movie or any, literally anything. I just would you just love want to it see out there. It. You just want it on the screen. I just want to see these two boys up on the screen, men, young men. Let's, I'm not being weird. They are young men. Um, <laughs> you said boys. And lads, let's call them lads. Lads. Somewhere, yeah. somewhere in between of boys and men, there are lads. Okay, red, white, and royal blue. So if you know there's someone out there that's looking to commission this or produce this, just hit up Miriam. She has loads of ideas. She I have them so to us. many. I have so many ideas. Um, I would just like to attend the casting session more than anything. Then y'all can just take it from there. <laughs> Do you have in mind like who you'd want for each role, or you haven't thought that far? I haven't thought that far um, because I'm really paying attention to like the descriptions, uh, and I want to like really want to get it right. Um, but there, there's, there's someone out there. But I can't decide if it'd be more fun if it was like unknown. an unknown who yeah. you bring or someone who, I feel like I want to bring in an unknown, honestly. Yeah, that could be like a cute Netflix movie, I feel. Or do you want it to be on HBO? What are you feeling? <laughs> Sorry, did you not realize this is the no, production meeting really for? Think, I think that Netflix, I, so no, it's, I think this is totally valid. But I think that like the, I think it should be a Netflix thing. It feels Netflix. Um, sort of like, I, I was very much picturing it because I was maybe fresh off of Bridgerton, is picturing it in this like 
production style of that, obviously like in modern times, but I do think Shonda Rhimes and Netflix plus like maybe some actual gay men who will understand those dynamics better than Shonda or Netflix will. I think that is like a team that would do an amazing job. Um, do you know who shouldn't be near it? Ryan Murphy. I was going to say not Ryan Murphy. Not Ryan Murphy. <laughs> Don't let Ryan Murphy near things. He does too much. Um, my answer is the book Luster, which I've spoken about nonstop since the summer, I think. Uh, but it's, it's a book that came out last year by Raven Leiliani, who is a really, really um, wonderful author and genuinely good person, I think. Um, and the book made like Obama's top lists of 2020 mm-hmm. as well. So obviously there's loads of hype and I think it would just be a really, really fun book. It's about a young 20 something year old girl who gets into a, a relationship with a, an older white man who is in an open marriage and just kind of the dynamics between her and him and then also his wife who like knows about the relationship but obviously isn't very happy about it and like what it's like being like a young black woman in New York as well and also what it's like being an artist who is struggling with 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 like what her art means to herself I guess um that's the theme that the book really explores and I I really appreciate it because I think you know when you think of creative people you just think it comes to you naturally but there's actually a lot of like struggle that goes into it and a lot of trying and trying and trying again and willing to embarrass yourself in order to like make your art better and I think yeah. the book tackles that well and I think a film would be really good so if you liked luster the other book I finished this month was conversations with friends um it's sally sally rooney yeah sally i rooney. preferred yes. conversations with friends over normal people i wanted the conversation with friends tv show not it normal would people. be I, I i really enjoyed normal people like i think hulu did a great job but i after reading conversations with friends i was so blown away um and that book like hit me really hard i just like really <laughs> yeah. felt i really felt a lot of that um and i think it was just so beautifully written um so I, yeah, that's another, if people like I mean, Luster. I reread that, to be honest, because yeah. I really liked it. Um, and Sally Rooney has a new book coming out soon. Oh, okay. does she? Yeah. Um, so what are we talking about today, Mames? Is it Sally Rooney? Is it books? Is it films? I mean, we could just keep doing that for a while. Um, but no, taking a hard left um, from <laughs> Sally Rooney, we are going to be talking about uh, the Church of Scientology today and like why... Who are they? Where did they come from? What is their obsession with uh, being tax exempt? And like, what are all the shady things that they do with said status? Just trying to understand sort of the structure of the church, how it evolved um, and sort of, you know, what it means uh, also through the legal perspective. Aisha is going to provide her (laughs) lawyer expertise. I will sit and bask in it. I don't understand what any of it means, but uh, yeah, that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, yeah, and, and well, like the political element of it, I think, because um, this is a, it's kind of a funny story, a uh, podcast about the intersection between pop culture and politics. We haven't said that in a while. Names, it's where they the collide. Way. It's where they collide. But um, I think the political aspect is interesting, like how, how and why are churches considered, you know, or religious organizations considered charitable organizations? And why does that make them tax exempt? And like, what does that mean when the government can't interfere with a church? And also, what does it mean when the government gets to designate who is a church and who isn't? And I think Scientology is really interesting because so many people know that it's not really a church in the traditional sense. So, but then why is it tax exempt? And Miriam has done some excellent research on that, that we can get into now. So Mames, what is Scientology? Tell us about the history or 
you know, an abbreviated history. I know it's long. All right. So Scientology was uh, started by a guy named L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, the L is Lafayette. So Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. Um, <laughs> quite a name. Um, so he is uh, a little bit about him. He was born in 1911, um, which sounds like a weird, that sounds like a fake year. It's not a real year. 1911? 1911 that... sounds can't be like possible. a made up number, right? <laughs> okay. I've said it out loud and I was like, 19, did I say that right? Um, it's not anyway, a real year. Okay. He is from Nebraska. He's a George Washington University dropout. He, um, fun, fun facts. Um, and in the 30s, he had a pretty successful scientific uh, or science fiction career writing for magazines. Uh, he has actually pu published over a thousand books. And mm -hmm. according to the Going Clear uh, documentary, which we'll, we'll talk about, uh, holds the, world, the Guinness World Record for number of books published. So very into that. But he was really focused on science fiction, particularly into the theme of like missions into space, which mm -hmm. is a theme that kind of comes up later um, in Scientology itself. But in 1950, um, or before 1950, apologies. So he served in World War II, um, which was a major part of like the persona he built um, within the church. And he would say he has all these medals and was involved in major battles and uh, that he had all these ailments because of it. In a shock to no one, his military record shows that um, most of his service took place in like Oregon and that he um, had all of these, he claimed all these wartime ailments he didn't have anything beyond arthritis and conjunctivitis. Like he was fine. So I so think he lied. that he lied. No, he totally, he totally exaggerated, made things up. Um, my, the fun fact was when he accidentally shelled a Mexican Island, he was relieved of his command. I don't understand what that sentence means. He but accidentally that is why he, shelled a Mexican Island? Yes. Okay. He, oh, and okay. And then, then they were like, serving. you can just go. You're like, you can go now. <laughs> you can go. You're causing too much. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that was him in World War II. Such a star. He comes back. He moves to uh, LA and he writes a book called uh, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. So originally, Dianetics is supposed to be about the science of the mind, but he, that's, Dianetics is really the text he adapted um, to the Church of Scientology and sort of to write the original tenets of the church. Um, so Dianetics, essentially, just to very briefly explain what that is, it's the idea that um, every human mind um, has like this scar tissue from trauma um, called engrams. And these engrams can be removed and you can kind of become your pure version of yourself called a tenet uh, by uh, going through a therapeutic process called auditing, which we'll again talk about. Um, but auditing is essentially just like one-on-one -on -one counseling therapy. Um, so it's the idea of, which is not like a crazy concept, right? Like you talk yeah. about your trauma and you heal your scars, like seems fine. Um, but it's obviously almost it like, like that's else. the way like confession is viewed as well. Like when you like talk about yeah. something, you just like let it all out. And then the priest who's listening to you isn't allowed to tell anyone, um, yeah. you know, your confession, but yeah. But why exactly. is this weird? So the thing is, is that when you get into the few, like sort of how this idea of auditing and stuff evolves, it, it becomes commoditized just like everything else, right? So the, the thing that struck me is one, they're very anti-psychiatry and psychology, which theoretically is like the same thing. 
and they're not anti-medicine. Um, it's, it's really interesting, like where they fall in the spectrum of like, I actually looked up their stance on the vaccine and on COVID mm-hmm. and they're like very on top of their, at least according to them, very on top of their social distancing masks. They've moved all their services online. Um, so they like, and they're like, they have no stance, like no anti-vax stance. So like <laughs> in many ways they're, they're totally fine in the medical a sense they like aren't that much of a danger except for that they also are because they're barely anti-psychiatry they think like the way to deal with your trauma is to like pay a ton of money to go through their auditing process and like move up the ranks um so the problem is really is is the fact that they're charging a lot of money and saying that there's no other way to deal with your trauma, with your trauma. Um, that they're yeah and they've they've kind of created fake medical devices and all sorts of like false medical information around this theme of um, mental health. So that's where a lot of controversy has, has, come, has come from with the church. Um, so when Dianetics came out in 1950, uh, it's per- post-World War II. So audiences actually really vibed with what he was uh, claiming. And like my theory is that it's, you know, there was a lot of collective trauma, obviously, after World War II um, in America. And my guess is that someone kind of coming in, offering this like cure-all, giving them the control to heal their mind again and feel better really resonated with people. Um, And so his ex-wife, Sarah Northrup, uh, again, she was, uh, she's kind of talked a lot about her time with her husband. Um, She was, I think, 13 years younger than him. Um, but she says that what she remembers of Hubbard, like writing Dianetics and why he got into this whole thing was not to help people. He said to her in her words, quote, the only way to make any real money was to have religion. That's essentially what he was doing with Dianetics, get a religion where he could have an income and the government wouldn't take it away from him in the form of taxes. So like he always had it in the back of his mind that this is the direction he wanted to go. Um, and it was a cultural phenomenon for a while, like Dianetics before it even became Scientology, um, people were paying like 500 bucks to go to his workshops. And he, I think sort of started to internalize how much he was being adored and revered and like, a, be, kind of felt like he was a godlike figure. Like he convinced um, himself of his own teachings. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I think he really just enjoyed the power and respect, um, and, you know, people paying hundreds and thousands of dollars to hear him talk like that'll go to your head. Mm-hmm. Um, so he eventually, uh, about two years later, incorporated um, the first Scientology organization um, in LA. And the word Scientology comes from Sci, uh, which is Latin for science, and Logos, which is Greek for knowing. Um, and then Scientology was, was born. Was created. <laughs> I, I, side note, I really don't like it when people like pick and choose like a Greek word, a Latin word, and then just put them together. I'm just like, choose, choose a language, people. Choose a classic language. Um, that's really interesting. Do you think that this is a good time for a break? Yeah, let's pause here. Let's pause a little here. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. So before we left, Miriam was explaining, you know, the founding of Scientology and who L. Ron Hubbard was. Um, so Miriam, what was the difference between Dianetics, which is the book L. Ron Hubbard published, and Scientology, which was the religion that he founded? Like, what, what, what changed in between those two things? So 
he essentially really ran with this idea of like the the engrams and like this trauma that you have and kind of removing that scar tissue mm -hmm. and he added a he really dug into the scientific or the science fiction and version of all of that so he essentially said that humans have um immortal souls called thedans that are trapped within like our physical forms and they live through various lifetimes like so they it's sort of similar to how you would think about reincarnation mm -hmm. and um by purging your reactive mind of the scar tissues that have them trapped you become quote clear and clear is actually like a phrase he used a lot um in his science fiction writing like way back when so that's like one of the themes that this like idea of being clear uh started a long time ago but he codified it here in the, the church of scientology as you become clear and that's like one of your main goals in being a scientologist so okay um yeah and there's a lot of mythology around it thedans like emerged in the process of creation and then they created matter energy space and time and made the visible universe possible and um you know we then became tr like the thedans became trapped um and so we're trying to sort of release those thedans so there's a lot of you know and there's like some uh, there's like some alien themes and like there's a lot i'm not going to attempt to explain outer space situation all of the yeah i'm not going to attempt to explain all of their beliefs um for the purposes of this episode and like what is relevant the the idea is like by becoming clear you hit a particular level um and of course you have to pay a lot of money to go through the auditing to go process clear. To yeah become clear mm -hmm. um and then you those who are clear reach a higher level of ethical and moral standards greater creativity control over their environment they're even less susceptible to disease. But like I mentioned earlier, they are not anti-vaxxer, which is interesting. <laughs> um, and I appreciate, I guess. Uh, thank but you, Scientology. Science, thank you, Scientology. Um, but actually, what, so L. Ron Hubbard, um, we'll, we'll touch on it, but he faced a lot of legal troubles. And at some point he kind of stepped away um, and he created something called the Sea Org, um, which yes. literally was on a ship. Um, and if you reach that clear level, then you could train even more and pay even more um, and sort of move up into um, that higher order of, uh, of Scientology. So there, there's like a constant moving up the ranks, constant opportunities to kind of make money and uh, they just create, they created a very stratified process. So you become clear, but then there's even a level beyond that. So, so you just, you're always striving for something more. It's like a Ponzi yeah. scheme almost. Yes. Um, I, I read this description of Scientology this morning and I really liked it. it. It described, Scientology describes its goals, its goal as a religion uh, is, sorry, I'm going to start that again. Scientology describes its goal as, quote, a civilization without insanity, without criminals and without war, where the able can prosper and, and honest beings can have rights and where man is free to rise to greater heights. To reach those heights, Scientologists believe each individual must be cleared of problems and afflictions through a series of counseling sessions known as auditing. Um, the sessions are performed by a trained auditor assisted by a device similar to a lie detector known as an e-meter. And what was interesting about this uh, description is like the first part makes sense to me. You know, oh, I want a civilization without insanity, without criminals, without war. Okay, that, that seems like a good goals. And then the second section kind of shifts and it becomes more about money because you know you have to be cleared how much are the counseling sessions a trained auditor how much like if you want to become an auditor i bet you have to pay to take auditor classes and then the device how expensive is this device and like you suddenly see the the scheme 
within it uh, there. And that's when I was like, okay, this, this is not real. <laughs> you know what that your analysis reminds me of is literally what we said last time about goop where like the premise we agreed with those episodes, right? Where it's like, oh, like, you know, uh, we focus too much on success and we don't reflect enough and women don't own, you know, their bodies and like whatever. And then you see the solution and you, you're you like, oh, now you've lost me. But <laughs> yeah, the solution is exactly buy products <laughs> yeah, like, this, destroy this, your it's body. Exactly, it's exactly how you just described Scientology, which I just, I think is very interesting. Wow, look at parallels, look at us. Look at that. <laughs> I called I called Goop a cult last time. Did. And this only, this only kind of bolsters that argument. So I'm just going to throw that so out there. Is L. Ron Hubbard still alive? What happened to him? L. Ron Hubbard is no longer alive. So essentially what happened was, um, so in 1966, he resigned from uh, all the offices of the Church of Scientology, which he had been um, in charge of, and created that, like I said, post-clear level kind of operations. The Sea Org. Yeah. The and part of the reason he sort of retreated was because he was dealing with a lot of criminal um, and like legal issues. So in 1963, the e-meters uh, you described, Aisha, um, were seized by the FDA as illegal medical devices and the literature that came with them um, that they claimed were making false medical, uh, providing false medical information. So the suit, the suit actually failed, but the court did order that the meter had to now come with like a disclaimer that it's a purely religious artifact and they had to pay some fines and stuff like that. Um, so that was 63. Hubbard quits in 66 to fall, uh, to create the Sea Org. Um, but even into the 70s, he, um, he was actually in Europe um, for a time. And yeah, that's what you do. You flee that's to Europe at some point. leader, you have to flee to Europe. It's yeah. part of the... <laughs> it's, it's, part it's of in the, the guidebook. Like, yep. Yeah. It's, um, so he was facing criminal charges in France and then moved to Queens and then was facing indictment in the state. So he he hid out in California. Um, and essentially the only contact he had with the outside wor world was he had 10 messengers who would like pass messages back and forth. And then he died in the eighties um, and his protege, David Miscavige uh, took yes. over. And that's who we all know and are aware of now. Terrified um, of personally. Yeah, he is, he's a scary dude. So um, yeah, that's what ended up happening to to Hubbard and then I mean Miscavige really he really took Scientology to another to another he level really did you know like when you think about the Beyonce and Jay-Z song called Upgrade You I think about like David Miscavige and Scientology because like Scientology was a religion you know when Hubbard was still part of it but when David Miscavige took over it became something way more it became a movement it became a lifestyle he upgraded the religion in many ways to make it like more profitable to make sure that celebrities were able to become Scientologists and then to use the celebrities like profile to manipulate more people to enter like think of all the people who become Scientologists because Tom Cruise is so successful that's David Miscavige that is his yeah. hard work um yeah like he there's really this, hustles there's this amazing clip amazing clip because like Scientologists have really struggled to um include uh, people of color in Scientology, especially Black Americans, African Americans, like they really always try. So David Miscavige was like, we're going to use Tom Cruise to get African Americans into <laughs> Scientology. And David Miscavige's great idea was like, I forget what movie, um, it was a war, I think it was War of the Worlds. Miscavige was like, he needs to appear on BET. 
for like multiple times. Oh There's all God. these clips of Tom Cruise dancing to rap music on BET, trying to get people to like come watch War of the Worlds or something. It's really funny, but um, actually terrible when you really think about like the process behind that. But yeah, um, black people do not want to fuck with Scientology. And I, I mean, listen, <laughs> David Miscavige uh, was really ahead of the the DEI dialogue that's happening today. Let's let's give you <laughs> <laughs> diversity and inclusion. At, yeah, um, Scientology. really ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, well, so it's interesting. The other thing that David Miscavige did um, that uh, L. Ron Hubbard had really struggled with. So like I touched on in the very beginning, like Dianetics, Scientology, all of that, he had his eye to like being a tax exempt organization and like keeping all of his money, mm-hmm. uh, at least according to his ex-wife. So like in 1958, the IRS began to revoke the tax exempt status of individual Scientology churches because of things like selling counseling courses and the e-meters the and e-meter, stuff like yeah. that, right? So um, he had really been for many decades struggling and um, I don't know if you want to talk about it now or later, but like there was like some crazy operations that the Church of Scientology kind of pulled um, to, to try and hold on uh, to their tax status and also just like generally fight all these legal battles. Um, but it was David Miscavige who finally made it happen it? in 1993. Oh no, let's, let's talk about that later. I feel like we need to kind of get into, you know, the debate about churches and taxes in the first place because yeah. we mentioned that L. Ron Hubbard really wanted to keep his tax exempt status, but then we have to know like, okay, why are churches tax exempt? What is it about, you know, churches and religious organizations that um, it's, it's such a lofty goal for him? So that's what I looked into. So first of all, did you know that there's a church tax in parts of Europe, like Germany and Austria and like Sweden? If you are a member of the church, you have to pay mand- mandatory taxes in order to financially support the church. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. So some people actually cite that um, for like lower church attendance nowadays, because, you know, right now, like a lot of younger people are like why should I be part of a church and pay taxes when I can just be not part of a church but still like you know maybe watch services online or something and then not have to pay taxes so Mm. but like in Germany over 70% of church revenues come from that church tax um and like in Pentecostal communities um I'm Nigerian as I've mentioned a million times but um because Pentecostal churches are a big deal in Nigeria there's there's something similar called tithing um, although that's, it's not technically mandatory, it's not like a state tax, but um, tithing, um, which is tied to the prosperity gospel in the church, is that you should pay a tenth of your salary to the church. It's the idea that if you donate your money to a religious cause like the church, then God will reward you multiple times over. And it's, I mean, it's a really simple thing to understand, but there's this amazing John Oliver episode. Um, it's actually, yeah. I think, my favorite of all time on televangelists, and especially in the U.S., and how, like, how easy it is in the U.S. to come up with your own church and get tax-exempt status, but then also how, like, the prosperity gospel, the the pastors that preach the prosperity gospel, they're all, like, millionaires now because they get their church attendees to spend 10% of their salary on them, and then they keep the money because it's tax-exempt, and they say, oh, I have all this money because God loves me, because, like, I put 10% of my salary, you know, years ago, and now this is God paying me back. So it's, like, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I think, like, you know, when you watch the John Oliver episode or when you look at these really fancy pastors, the same thing happens in Nigeria. A lot of the pastors are very, very wealthy. You kind of get this perception that, like, okay, wh- why aren't these people taxed? Like, they are so wealthy. They're technically stealing money. Well, not stealing, but they're taking money away from po- people who are probably, like, underprivileged, who are going who are investing in their religious community because that's like something that's very important to them. 
and they get so much money in donations and tithes and like these millionaires just kind of keep the money so the debate around church taxation definitely is, is centered around that kind of concept just people being like why like why do they have so much money and like um just the, in the muslim perspective we also have zakat which is i think very different because you don't really have like muslim communities don't like you have imams but imams would not be the ones to keep the money for um zakat like when you pay zakat you pay it to the community in your own way you can like donate to a you know children's an orphanage for example or like during ramadan you can like uh like do a spread for everyone in the community so it doesn't really pass through the hands of the imam in that way but um i found that interesting that like because i was thinking what other charge like what are the examples of church taxes in other religions and i was like oh like in muslims we have zakat but that's more personal it's not tied to your mosque i think that that's actually Loki. one of the things i really appreciate about islam is that there is not for most muslims there is no like high like authority figure in the yeah. way that there is like a pope or you know, that kind of leader, like you said, the imam sort of like runs the services, but beyond that doesn't have like any other like kind of quote unquote power or standing beyond just sort of like leading services. And maybe they have a prominent role in the community, but like you said, zakat does not go into their hands. Like zakat can go wherever you want it to go, mm-hmm. um, which I also really appreciate. And even like in the Quran, it says like, if you can't afford to give zakat, like that's okay. Like, um, there is they which i again i like that it's sort of written in a very practical it's it's like voluntary in a way yeah it's like a it's a it's one of the five pillars but it's also like with this idea of if you don't have the income that's also fine like you know you just do the best you can and i i like i like that energy so um i do think it's different the the famous example obviously that um i know we've talked about is uh joel osteen in houston joel osteen he's an example He's yeah. an example of one of these millionaire pastors. He, um, I remember there was a Houston hurricane, right? Harvey, a couple, yeah. Harvey, yes. And he has like the Superdome church that has so many seats and so much space. And people were looking for, um, you know, shelter. And he was refusing to let people into his church. And he, he was trying to just avoid that. And that's a perfect example of, of why you would be like, so he's got all this money from his tax exempt status. He's a millionaire. He preaches this prosperity gospel. But then when like the poor and the hungry are in need, he closes his doors. That's, that's not, you know, that's not the religion. He's a crook. I'm going to just say it. Like he <laughs> well, like, I wasn't going to say it, but yes. <laughs> oh no. He like lives in my neighborhood. He's a to this podcast. It's okay. Um, but maybe I he does. And if he does, I'm still going to tell you, Joel Osteen, you're an absolute crook. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, that church is enormous. I drive by it constantly. Um, and it just makes me a little mad every time I see well, it. Well, um, didn't we shame him into opening it? I think after like a day or two. Oh yeah, like, no, he yeah. was, he was shamed. People were like, are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> and then he felt awkward and opened up his doors, but it took a lot of pressure. Like, and it shouldn't. Yeah, it's madness. So, so anyway, why aren't churches taxed? This would like answering this question properly would have had me like researching the individual legal um tax laws of every country so i'm not going to do that i'm going to provide a more general explanation um churches and religious organizations aren't taxed because they are treated like charities they provide social benefits to society you know in every religion you know when you have your place of worship that's a place people can go if they like need food they need shelter they're hungry you know they're um, unhoused um and they're like a church or a mosque or something is more likely to, to do the work to feed and clothe people than like a government agency 
if you think about it, because you're doing it out of like the love of your, um, the love of your like um, religion. So the Roman Emperor Constantine was actually the first person to make uh, the Christian church tax exempt. Um, in England, under the Charities Act of 2011, churches are given charitable status because the, the advancement of religion is considered a charitable purpose um, under the act. Um, so then, and then in the US, a church is automatically considered um, a 501c3 charity. We, we did, did we do 501c4s during the FEC um, Stephen Colbert episode? I'm trying to remember when we talked about the different categorizations of organizations. It, I think so. I think we did. I think we did. But anyway, a church is like a, a Christian church is automatically considered a 501c3 charity. And so it's tax exempt. Um, and the IRS defines a church. Uh, they use a lot of different um, kind of categories to define a church, but essentially a church is an organization that has a distinct legal existence, a recognized creed and form of worship, a formal code of doctrine and discipline. It has to have literature of its own. It has to have an established place of worship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if a church meets these standards, it's automatically considered a 501c3. But if it doesn't meet these standards, you can still just register as a 501c3 charity. And then there will be a review process and then you're considered a church and then you get tax exemption or you're considered a religious organization. Um, and in many ways, it makes sense that like, you know, churches and religious organizations can function as a sort of welfare state for people in the community. You know, if you're wealthy enough not to benefit from these religious organizations, that's fine. It doesn't mean you should prevent others from benefiting from them. Um, but there exists a huge debate about whether or not to tax churches and other religious organizations. And I think, you know, Scientology really sits at the center of that when you think about like, okay, but what is a real church? All those, the list that the IR, IRS put together, um, it could be anything. I could start a church of Mindy Kaling where, you know, established place of worship is my house. Literature is her first book because everyone else hanging out without me. A religious history is, you know, I mean, Mindy Kaling's life. That's a history. Like we could, we could start the church right now, Miriam. Um, I think we should. I would join that church. It would be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. We'd have to renounce everything else, but like, Mindy. It's fine. We'll figure it out after, <laughs> after the episode. Um, should we take a break? Another break? This has yeah. been quite long. <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's take a break. See you guys soon. Let me start again. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think, yeah. We're not like, I'm, I'm running out of steam. I don't know. I'm trying to stay You can do it. We're, 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 we're there. We're almost there. We're halfway there. Um, Living on a prayer. <laughs> oh my gosh bon jovi concert june 8th 2010 highlight of my life wow that sounds amazing it was great when they played living on a prayer i did i cry probably um when john bon jovi uh is in 30 rock and yes. uh she's high on like that's like honestly one of my favorite episodes when she goes to the dentist office she goes to the dentist office like, and then yeah like Bon Jovi, um, and she kisses a plant, but like all of her exes are there. Just, that's a whole fun episode. Do you know John Bon Jovi's greatest acting moment? I think though is in New Year's Eve. That like movie. God, <laughs> he like plays like Catherine Heigl's ex, who is yeah. John Bon Jovi. Um, that, he was great in that movie. I watched it multiple times in cinema. I find him very charming. Yeah, there's something about him, and like you can see why he is the leader of the group. Like I barely remember anyone else in 
in the band Bon Jovi. It's just yeah, them. it's it's just Bon Jovi. Yeah, are there bon other Jovi's, people in the band? There are other people in the band. Bon Jovi's of them. The rest of them are Who's. Um, but also most of the songs I think are written by him. So there's also that. Yeah. Anyway, John Bon Jovi. What a. I hope I can go to another concert of his when all this is over. That'd be nice. That'd be fun. One day. One day. All right. So let's get back into it. But before we before we get back into the the script of what we had been talking about, Aisha, there was <laughs> something you mentioned before the break that I was thinking about. We were talking about how um, the reason that churches are tax exempt is because the understanding is that they will kind of take care of. Uh, people in need and be there as like, um, you use the, fair, the, the phrase welfare state. And what's so interesting to me is I think that if you actually think about how the government is structured and like the role of the government, this is like a really fundamental thing about American conception of government, which is that it, it's an idea, it's a small government concept, right? Because theoretically, if the government was doing what it's supposed to do, they would ensure that everybody is clothed and fed and has shelter. Like that is what the baseline, at least in my mind, should be, right? And there is this longstanding assumption about like the nonprofit church, like 501c3 world. Um, and this is something I think about a lot um, because of my job. Uh, and there's something called the nonprofit industrial complex. And it's essentially this idea that um, nonprofits are expected to cover where the government fails, do it on as like small a budget as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you create this like really kind of toxic cycle of the government never really stepping up because there's an assumption that uh, a nonprofit, so that nonprofit will step will in and like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it like it, we're talking about it, the context of the church right now and church tax status. But to me, this is part of a much larger question of what is the role of the government and how much should they be responsible for making sure people are taken care of? Because if you know that the baseline human needs are being taken care of by the government and then churches don't necessarily play that role as much as they were previously, then the question of the tax is really different, which I think was, which is just an interesting concept of like how Americans think about the role of government and like taking care of people. So not a particularly a fully point. baked thought, but like something it's there, that I've it's been cooking. thinking about. It's cooking. Yeah. It's in the oven. Braising. Yeah. <laughs> it's braising for a couple hours. It'll come back and be even better uh, the next time. But yeah, I just wanted to share that thought uh, while it was in my mind. Um, Thank you. You're so welcome. Um, okay. So uh, talking about the tax exempt status uh, for the Church of Scientology. So like I mentioned, David Miscavige is the one who actually finally made it stick. Um, mm-hmm. So in 1993, um, so he's been running the organization for like, you know, less than 10 years, about 10 years at this point, I guess. Um, and he shows up to uh, the IRS headquarters unannounced and says, I will drop 2,500 lawsuits that individual Scientologists had filed against the agency in exchange for tax exempt status. And they were just like, fine, you can have it. That was it. That was That's it. how it happened. That's how it happened. There was I no like, legal justification. They had yeah. tried literally the year before and uh, U.S. claims court cited that quote, commercial character of the Church of Scientology um, and it's quote, uh, incomprehensible financial procedures, quote, scriptural based hostility to taxation are all reasons for not giving them tax exempt status. And then a year later, they're like, 
whatever you can have it i mean this is the thing about david miscavige is like he when he wants something he'll get something that so in the going claire documentary they really try and kind of make him the villain and it's not hard to do so because he's just this figure that is very much like if i want something i'm going to try and try and try until i get it um within scientology they referred to this um back and forth with the irs as like the 30-year war because it literally was 30 years against the irs like trying and trying and trying to get tax-exempt status and like the IRS always saying no because, and, and I'm court saying no because this is clearly a fraud, a fraudulent church and you should, you're not a real church. And um, for David to just walk into the headquarters and just kind of do a quid pro quo is, is very like him. Um, what was the reaction to that? Do you know? I mean, on whose part? On, uh, within Scientology, I guess people were very happy. Yeah, I mean, people were thrilled. Uh, it's what they had, to your point, it, there was like a whole kind of mythology and like internal process set around um, this, this legal battle, right? So they had actually created something called the Guardian's Office, which is now called the Office of Special Affairs. Um, so that office was created in 1966. And essentially their job was just to defend the church against all these legal battles and like fight the IRS and all this kind of stuff. Um, so there was an operation in the seventies to essentially infiltrate government agencies, um, and, uh, 11 officers, um, of this guardian's office were arrested in 79 and the church didn't like defend them. They're like, oh yeah, no, they're just, they, they did the bad apples argument that you, um, hear a lot. Um, well, so it's a couple of bad apples. To infiltrate government agencies, okay. And then they just like rebranded as the Office of Special Affairs, um, and that's really where a lot of the shady stuff goes down, right? It's like that's where you hear stories of people being harassed at work um, by someone from the church or being recorded. Um, there was even an operative named Gary Scarf who was told, uh, who was directed to murder uh, Cynthia uh, Kizier of the cult awareness network um he didn't do it but like that's where a lot of that like creepy you can't ever leave you'll never be left alone kind of stuff happens um so there was so like like there was like they were putting hits out on people essentially exactly so like when the tax exempt status did come through like that was a big victory um but not everybody like they're, they're a global um organization right so in 2013, uh, Britain's highest court um, did affirm uh, its status as a religion um, by saying that it could conduct weddings at its church in London. So I should mm -hmm. have you go to a Scientology wedding in London, please let me know. <laughs> um, but then you've got like Germany, um, which has barred Scientologists from holding public office and considers it a threat to its constitutional order. And they're like monitoring them in the way they are monitoring neo-Nazis and jihadist groups. Um, the French also, obviously not a fan of theirs. Um, the interesting thing about the court. French, oh, sorry. Oh, go finish. ahead. I was just going to say the interesting thing about like a French approach is because it's a secular state, it doesn't really um, need to recognize the church for the church to, um, for the church to operate. So unlike Germany, which is probably the opposite, like Germany cares a lot about like the church and the state and like religious organizations. But in France, I bet like the Church of Scientology, the French may not like it, but because of that strict separation of church and state, you know, um, they don't need to like, they don't need the approval of the government to keep running. Totally. Um, I mean, they did find the, the church guilty of fraud, right? Like that is more within the, yeah, I guess, jurisdiction of what they can do um, in the realm of what is allowed. But they, yeah, like you said, they can't 
actually ban it. Um, and like one of the, the pieces I was reading notes that French, uh, like the France and Germany were both affected the most when it came to, there was a, a cult, like an end of the world cult called Order of the Solar Temple. Um, and in 1994, 53 of the members, there was like a murder-suicide, like mass oh, suicide wow. situation. And majority of them were French and German. So that I think has sort of kind of absorbed into the psyche of these two governments. And I also think it ties to what I was saying earlier, right? Like Britain, uh, France, Germany, the US all have really different conceptions of role of government, role of religion in government, separation of church and state. So you can see it's super interesting how their take on Scientology reflects sort of like what those countries think about uh, when it comes to the role of government. And uh, interestingly, in 2017, Trump actually said he didn't think Scientology was a religion and probably shouldn't have tax exempt status. And while like, he didn't have like direct control over that decision, um, this was around the time he was confirming a new head of, um, I think the IRS or someone to replace the interim head of the IRS. And so he was, that's why it had come up and people asked him what his thoughts were. Don't think anything obviously happened out of it, mm -hmm. but there was like a whole week, everyone was like, is this, is this it? Is, this is it, it finally happening? And then it didn't happen. Um, but that would have been really fun. And this conversation would be very different. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine, I imagine Trump is the kind of person who thinks that Scientology is for losers. Like, I feel like he would be like, why do you need someone to look into my head? Like, there's no trauma. I'm perfect. Like, this is not so, like, unless, unless he was accepted into the church and immediately given like the highest status, like the David Miscavige, Tom Cruise status, he would not be oh, yeah. interested. Unless like they said, listen, if you come in with us, you're going to automatically be top level and everyone's going to think you're perfect. Unless that was happening, he wouldn't be interested. He would, he'd be like, but oh, I also don't like financially, it's interesting because he and David Miscavige have a lot of similar qualities <laughs> yeah. in a sense. And they're like, both scammers, yeah. they're both, they're both scammers and they're both, uh, trying to hold on to as much money as possible. Um, David Miscavige doing it far more successfully than Trump has, but he really should look into uh, creating a church of Trump. Honestly, it might really, uh, yeah, it can might, you imagine? It might so. Imagine a church he of Trump would he absolutely- wouldn't want to do the work. He wouldn't want to do the work. That's what his kids are there for, his <laughs> army of children. <laughs> Ivanka would be on it. Ivanka, um, I'm like imagining Ivanka as like the Virgin Mary, like kind of like motif, just like, just robed, like yeah. oh God, horrifying. But yeah, um, so, but there's still celebrities who are big, you know, Scientologists and, and they support them, right? Yeah, I mean, we know uh, Tom Cruise, we mentioned, uh, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley. Elizabeth Moss is a really interesting one. Um, mm -hmm. She's quite silent about it. She like doesn't so, yeah, speak about it. She purposely like really avoids it. Um, but when Handmaid's Tale came out, which mm -hmm. obviously if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the story is this, is this world of Gilead in which- Wait, you are familiar because you watch, you listen to our episode, episode 20, where we spoke about Gilead. So if you- <laughs> I've already forgotten what our other episodes you, are you about. You talked about Panem, I talked about Gilead. Oh, I yes, talked about yes, yes, Genovia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, See, you're not our when, biggest fan, Miriam? I'm not our biggest fan. Well, you know how when podca podcasters used to say this on shows that, it was, that I listened to, they're like, I can never remember what I've previously talked about. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. And now I understand. Now, yeah. Okay, you get it now. <laughs> so yeah, now I understand how all these things just immediately fall out of your brain. But yes, so Elizabeth Moss was, you know, she's been asked a few times and she tends to say like, I don't like to talk about people's religious beliefs or assume what other people believe. And I, I feel like that's just not, I'm not in a position to really comment on 
that stuff. So th that's a lot of what her answer is. Mm. Um, and, but when someone very pointedly was like, okay, but did your experience acting in Handmaid's Tale and like living in this role of Gilead make you rethink Scientology? She said that, no, she said, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, freedom of religion is paramount. And like, she gave Ooh. one of those, like- She sidestepped it. Yeah, she sidestepped it and she's like, I think what's amazing about the world we live in is that everyone has freedom of religion and like Gilead did not have that. So like, that was her answer. Okay, Elizabeth, um, sure. Yeah, so she, she, she dances around it, but she doesn't, she's not like pulling a Tom Cruise who like goes to all the conferences and is like getting up on the stage with David Miscavige and dancing around there's, and having a like, moment. So going Claire, the movie, um, I didn't watch it this week, but I've watched it recently. Um, from 2015 a really good watch a good documentary it's based on a book that came out two years before that apparently is also even much better it's kind of like the bad blood thing with um elizabeth holmes that like the book was really good and then the the the, the hbo movie is all right but like you should read the book if you want all the cool facts there's you know i already said david miscavige is presented as the sort of villain there's a creepy you notice that david is trying to look more and more like tom cruise every year like there's also this like creepy like obsession oh. with Tom that you notice as the movie goes on. And then there's also, have you heard about the Clearwater compound in Florida? Yes. Yeah. They're technically, their headquarters is technically Clearwater, Florida. Yes. But they have a compound there where they take people who have been, you know, who have been bad essentially uh, in the church's standards. And uh, David's wife, Shelley Miscavige, who was like the first lady of Scientology for a while, she basically disappeared in 2007 without a trace and no one knows where she is. People think she's, in, she's being kept in the compound and the LA, LAPD has closed the case. They said that they had met with Shelley and she was fine and then they won't say anything else, which just terrifies me. And I felt this is the exact kind of story you would love. Like you would love a series on like, where is Shelley Miscavige? Oh, 100%. Well, so the other, the other one that so I've seen, I watched Going Clear a couple of years ago, um, but the one that I watched most recently was uh, Leah Ramini's uh, oh, her series. series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like production quality is a little, <laughs> eh, but um, it's very interesting because it it's just people who were in the church. Like Leah was in the church, and her partner, whose name currently escapes me, I apologize, but he um, was very high up in that office of special affairs I mentioned. Okay. Um, so they were both very senior and she was sort of, um, I believe she was Shelly Miscavige's right hand for a while. It was either her or someone she interviewed, but you talked to someone who was very, very close to Shelly and like was one of the last people to speak to her before she vanished, right? So I would also recommend that uh, series because it's a lot of interviews and just like more in-depth personal stories of like people being harassed, losing like hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to the church. Um, and then in their attempts to leave being, you know, really terribly mistreated and uh, pretty, it's pretty horrible stuff, um, but it's very, it's very interesting. I mean, like speaking of harassment, the movie, The Master, uh, which came out in 2012, it's by Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, the movie, like everyone knew when it was coming out that like the main guy played by Philip Seymour Hoffman was kind of based on L. Ron Hubbard. And Joaquin Phoenix, who plays, you know, the second lead, is drawn into this like weird cult religion that looks like Scientology. Mm. And I was reading today about how like, you know, Weinstein produced it. And um, Weinstein, 
you know, mentioned that like a lot of Scientologists tried to get the movie stopped. And the movie isn't even like drawing real like parallel lines to Scientology. Like it's yeah. one of those things you get like after, for me, it took two watches to really get it. The first time I watched it, I was like, wait, they never mentioned Scientology. Like I'm so confused. This was meant to be the Scientology movie. And it took like a second watch for me to get like, oh, wow, this is really subtle. And like the way, the way they like talk about like auditing they use different words in the movie and like just the way um philip seymour hoffman's characters is like slowly and surely losing his mind is a really great approach to it but yeah can you imagine like producing that film and then being targeted by scientologists i mean it's the other thing that strikes me about this whole thing is as i was watching it the other cult story that i like fell deeply into was nexium that was like the very recent oh, yeah. one and the parallels are unbelievable it's like literally as i was writing these episode notes i had to stop and think am i confusing the scientology one or the nexium one because it's <laughs> it's a lot of the same stuff where the, the premise is using like therapy type tools to kind of be a better version of yourself and leveling up and they bought all of these properties and built all of these centers. Um, so like real estate is a big thing that Scientologists, uh, like Church of Scientology also does. Nexium was doing the same thing. So it's just this really interesting, um, this this very interesting kind of um, very parallel sort of- So what you're saying is like Nexium like stole into. all of its best bits from Scientology. <laughs> like kind Nexium of. didn't even come up with its own cult. I mean, cult, like, as far um, as we know, Scientology didn't brand people, but like, yeah, it's a lot of the, a lot of the same stuff. Um, and like the, the inability to leave, um, you know, all of that, all that harassment. Kind of stuff is very similar. Yeah. So I think there are just some, there are just some themes that are very consistent across all of these, uh, these cults. So hmm. be careful, everyone. <laughs> just okay. stay, stay safe. <laughs> Yeah, please don't join a cult. Um, apart from the cult of Mindy Kaling that we're that we're starting, that is yeah. going to be amazing. Please join that one. Um, okay, so so far we've like spoken about Scientology, and we've also spoken about you know why technically churches and religious organizations aren't taxed. When we come back, we're going to dig into the debate a little more to end up the episode. Like you know why they should be taxed or why they shouldn't be taxed, and like we can also bring in you know what's special about Scientology as a fraudulent organization. So see you soon. All right, welcome back everyone. Um, so we have covered a lot of ground in this episode. We've talked about, yeah, we've talked about the founding of Scientology, their obsession with tax exempt status, some of the shady stuff they've done to keep their tax exempt status um, and to kind of keep the, the mystery alive. Um, but Aisha, let's, let's talk about the actual question of whether or not churches in general should be uh, tax exempt or not. What is your okay. perspective? Um, on this question? What are, the, what are the arguments on both sides, I guess? Yeah, I think there's a lot of good arguments on both sides. Um, I've already mentioned, you know, to, for the arguments of why churches and religious organizations shouldn't be taxed, I've already mentioned the idea of the welfare state, like religious organizations actually provide these services for underprivileged people, you know, why leave these people without a safety net, like at least, you know, if, if the church has the money, if, if the, like all the money that the church is getting, they should be able to keep it and be able to provide for people. Um, then you also have to think about, you know, government intervention in religions that has not had a history. It has not had a very good history. What would stop the government from overtaxing a certain underrepresented religious minority to try and shut them down? You know, like 
the idea that government can should be intimately intertwined with religion can be dangerous in a lot of countries or in a lot of situations. Like I know in the UK, um, the church is actually quite intertwined in government because you know the members of the clergy sit in the House of Lords and technically the Queen is in her position by the grace of God. Um, but that isn't as like heavy as you know the way it used to be when like uh, people used to argue for the divine right of kings, et cetera, et cetera. So you could say that churches should be tax exempt because you don't want government meddling in religion. You don't want the government to have the power to kind of overtax a certain religion or undertax a certain religion. Um, and then it's also important to remember how churches receive their charitable status. They do so as nonprofits. Um, like the way the law is set up, at least in the US, they qualify as nonprofits and, that, and, and there's really no way to like separate the two. It would be really hard now to try and tax churches because you would also need to tax other nonprofits. Like, I don't know how your nonprofit is set up, but if it's essentially in the same way that a church is set up, then you would have this huge issue where suddenly a law is passed and you have to pay way more taxes than, than you normally would. So I'm not making excuses. I'm just pointing out how difficult it would be now in this day and age. Like in the UK, it's the same thing. Uh, churches and religious organizations are charities. It would be the same problem. How would you tax a certain group and not the others? Then on the flip side of the debate, you know, why they should be taxed. The first I've already pointed out, and John Oliver did it really well in his video, is that, um, you know, these pastors become millionaires and they don't actually spend the money on the people. That This is the thing about tax subsidies and, and tax cuts is like you think, oh, if you give people more money, they'll actually spend it on people. But no, a lot of people will just hoard the money. So if the intention of, of the tax exemption laws was to leave more money for the poor, then like surely the government should follow up with these organizations and be like, okay, like show us exactly how you spent nearly 100% of this money on the poor instead of on yourselves. And then- So you do have to submit pretty robust, like as a 501c3, like we have to submit a lot of forms, mm -hmm. but, and so you can look at like the 990s, what they're called of like these- oh, Look at you with your tax budgets. knowledge. I know, I know, I know one tax fact. <laughs> um, but I, but you can be- kind of vague and i my guess is that's what these churches are doing is that mm. they're like saying we bought a bunch of property to like house the poor or like we bought a bunch of property and they can like explain it away as something that is going to be used for um you know whatever but you can you do have to submit all of this stuff it just it's easy to nestle it all under these kind of vague descriptions is my my guess um just based on my own experience of having to do um Tax year on taxes. I mean, there's another economic view of the issue, um, which I, I was reading Matty Iglesias, who's a writer. He was on Vox, and I think now he has his own personal newsletter. But back in the day when he wrote for Slate, he made the case for taxing churches by basically saying that, like, like the tax-exempt status is technically a, a church subsidy. And the basic problem with subsidizing religion is that there's no reason to believe that religion-related expenditures enhance productivity or enhance the economy. Like if you give a factory a tax subsidy, they might spend that money on more plant equipment and like more workers and they'll be more productive. But when you, but like soul saving doesn't really work in this way. Like you don't get more economic, actually, I don't know. I would counter that and say that like, if you really do feel saved and you feel part of a religious community, maybe you'll work harder or you'll want to contribute more to society, but there's no way that can be measured in the same way that you measure like, you know, five more machines means, you know, more productivity. I also think that like scale wise, again, this is, this is like always my thing is if you're talking about the scale of addressing poverty and like making sure more people have jobs and all of that, like 
it's not going to come from churches. Like that's not, it's just, it's it's not going to happen. Yeah. It's not their job. Yeah. It's not their job. So yes. And then um, there's also, you know, um, the fact that like a church subsidy, you know, giving them tax exempt status um, is technically discriminating against people who don't belong to a church or religious organization when you think about it, because that church subsidy is, will, you know, in some way go to the members of the church or the members of that organization. And those people who aren't part of that organization do not get to see anything. So it is also kind of unfair to the members of society who consider themselves atheists or they don't support any religion. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure Ricky Gervais has a thought on this. I'm not going to delve into it. I like purposely <laughs> avoided anything to do with Ricky Gervais and like churches because I was like, he, he has a lot to say about it and none of it is interesting. Um, but, you know, th- that's the debate. And I think for me, I think for me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much of the, of the belief that you shouldn't, that, that, that churches and religious organizations should be tax exempt. Um, but I think with Scientology, there's some shadiness there that it's, it's hard to square with. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think I fall on the other side. I think I would uh, tax churches. Mm-hmm. I think I, think I feel disagreeing. Wow. Um, I think we are disagreeing, which is healthy. You know, it's healthy. <laughs> um, but I also want to clarify, like, Scientology definitely should be taxed. Um, and it's not because... I think sometimes the narrative could be twisted that it's because their their beliefs are weird and they have like space battles and weird thetans and all these things. Like, how can that be a real religion? Um, if you look at Old Testament, New Testament, all sorts of like, you know, more traditional, quote unquote, traditional Abrahamic faith mythologies or other mythologies, like there's a lot of weird stories. This is not about uh, Scientology being quote unquote out there. Um, it's very much all the stuff that we've talked about today. They've pulled a lot of dangerous, you know, moves on people and they've made people's lives really difficult. Um, and they've really pushed the, the boundaries of kind of legally what should be allowed. So I think that that's why it shouldn't be taxed. Um, I think that there might be an answer maybe between like generally like between the yes and no, where there may be past a certain income point you do tax um churches or there's like the way that you kind of check what expenses are being used or are kind of reevaluated like i don't know but um i think that i am a cynic when it comes to human nature and there are going to be more cases of people abusing these taxes than than um, actually using than actually using it for good again i also fundamentally think that like churches can be there to um, in a crisis, like provide additional shelter and like, you know, be a place for people to eat and stuff like that. But that is like, not the job of religious institutions. That is a job of government. Like government should be making sure that citizens are taken care of, not churches. Like that's just, that's my, that's my deep feeling about it. So I'm just like, they should be taxed because (laughs) yeah, they're not, they're not the people, even if, even if, every single church was pure of heart and doing exactly what they should be doing. It's still not enough to, to kind of make sure all of the, to make sure uh, everyone all people covered. are taken care of. Yeah. I mean, back so, to my earlier point, like if you don't belong to a church, but you are underprivileged, then where do you get your food and clothing from in the end? Yeah. So I don't know. It's, oh. it's, it's a messy question, but Scientology is like a very interesting extreme case of uh, the role of kind of 
church and religion and government and the very complicated relationship that they all have. So I'm glad we did this. This was this was I, a really yeah. interesting. This was different. our episode notes and our episode notes were nine pages. If anyone was wondering, oh we got gosh. deep into this. This is I think this might be our longest episode. Like when I'm editing this, I might have to edit it in two sessions this week. Um, this yeah, this is gonna be a long one. Um, what speaking of which, anything fun happening this week on your end? Anything good? My Peloton arrives. <gasps> Oh my god, are you gonna do the Beyonce classes? <laughs> That's all I would do Peloton for is the Beyonce classes. I actually exclusively do the um reggaeton classes with Cody. <laughs> Love him. <laughs> you know his name. I know oh, his that's name. Good. That's good. Yeah. I'm um oh, that's it. What am I doing? What's going on? Oh, I'm about to watch a movie with you. That's that's on my list. We are gonna watch Love Actually in February or think. like <laughs> late Jan. Yeah. <laughs> We are going to watch that. Time, time is not, time doesn't mean anything. Time is That's the one. Let's like Miriam. let's embrace it and say, you know what? If we want to watch a Christmas movie in January, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. I mean, we're celebrating New Year's Eve in August, so yeah, we don't we Why don't not? believe in time anymore. Um, <laughs> no, but we don't. Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening all the way to the end of this episode. We really appreciate it. Um, I love whenever anyone texts me that they're listening. Um, I it really like, brightens my heart. This is my favorite part of my week or my every two weeks. Names. Where can people find us? Um, so anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, um, Spotify, all the usual places, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. All of it makes a really big difference. Um, so much appreciated. Um, what about social media, Aisha? Where can they find us? Yeah, they can find your excellent work at Kind of Funny Pod <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. Like she is killing it. Miriam um, has such interesting posts and they're very funny and, and fun. So oh, thank, you thank you for, for doing that. <laughs> you're doing a really good job. Uh, wow. You're my We're inspiration, just... Aisha. You're, you're, <laughs> I'm just I trying love... to, I'm really trying to channel your, your voice as much as possible. I'm just hiding behind my hands here. Thank you for the compliment. <laughs> you're so welcome for the compliment. Okay. I hope you have a good week. I'll see you soon. I'll speak to you. I think Valentine's Day is our next recording. Yeah. yeah so romantic so romantic i'll speak to you then all right bye everyone bye